0: You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. The title of my sermon this morning, Jesus of the Old Testament. As we continue our study in the gospel of John, we are coming to the conclusion of John chapter 8. It's just by way of recap, because it has been a long chapter. Um, we are in the temple with Jesus during the Feast of Boots. This is a great uh, a big holiday in the Jewish faith. And they're commemorating their time in the wilderness of building tents in the wilderness and following the, the pillar of fire, which is the Lord. And so the Jesus is at this temple and he gives his great second I am statement. I am the light of the world. Claiming to be the truth, claiming to be the the light that leads people out of darkness, out of ignorance. Yet despite these claims, we see how the Jews and and specifically the, the Pharisees don't believe him, they reject him. And so Jesus brings a judgment on these people. He says in verse 24, unless you believe that I am... He, you will die in your sins. And as we've talked about in these few weeks, Jesus is explicitly declaring himself to be the God of the Old Testament. When he says, I am. And then in verse 32, he says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This truth that he speaks about is his divinity, his true identity as the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. The Son of God, equal to God in power, authority, and in nature. Now, despite these passages, uh, this, 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 despite some of these Jews rejecting uh, Jesus, it does say in verse 30 that many believed Him after these claims. And as we've been discussing, it, it's revealed that this belief in Christ was very superficial It was probably in the lines of a political messiah, a political leader. Maybe they thought that he was some sort of prophet or a good teacher, a good moral teacher to follow. Even a miracle worker. They knew Jesus did miracles. And so people believed him to that extent. But they did not believe that Jesus was God as we'll see in our passage today. Last week, Jesus gives reason for their unbelief. He says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. As we discuss fallen humanity in our, in our sinful nature, unregenerated hearts, we exemplify similar characteristics as the enemy of our souls, as the devil himself. And Jesus says, that is our father our, our, we, we exemplify his characteristics in our, our work, in what we do, in terms of our sinful acts, in our will, in what we desire for, in specifically in this context, to suppress the truth of God, to become our own authority over our lives. And, of course, even in the word that we hear, oftentimes in our sinful nature, the word that we hear, the, the, the voice that we follow, rather, is not God's, it's the world's, it's the enemies; it's our own flesh. So Jesus tells these people to their faces that they are, of, they are the children of the devil, kind of harsh, isn't it? Yet our passage shows, and in our passage' warning actually shows the response of the people. Look at verse 48 with me. The Jews answered him, "After being called the children of the devil, they say, "Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon?" If, if, if you know the context of who, or, or the nation, or the people, the Samaritan people in the ancient times, these were the sort of the pagan mixed blood Jews who were considered idolaters by the Orthodox Jews. They were actually considered worse than Gentiles. And so the, the Jews are saying that Jesus is a Samaritan. You're a pagan. You, if you're calling us, children of the devil. And then even, they even go to the extent of, call, of, of saying that Jesus has a demon. It's, it's actually pretty funny because Jesus said, you're, you're the children of the devil. And then now they're saying, no, you have a demon. It's kind of like back in the schoolyard. If you say, oh, you're ugly. And they say, no, you're ugly. It's like, okay, nice comeback, right? They were insulted. So they insult Jesus back and they say that he, he's a Samaritan, he has a demon and and they're they're insulting him, dishonoring him as Jesus talks about in the verse right after and really when they call jesus when they say that Jesus has a demon what they're really saying is that you must be crazy you must be crazy for thinking that you you are the, 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 the you are equal with God that you that that you're saying that you're that we're the children of the devil and Not the children of God. You must be crazy, Jesus. And what follows in our passage confirms even further for the Jews of of what they think of Jesus. It says in verse 49 of our passage, when Jesus replies, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge, and Jesus has talked about this before. But then, what really aggravates the Jews in our passage is verse 51, when Jesus gives a, an absolute statement. He says, truly, 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 in, in biblical context, means, or verily, verily, if you're into the KJV, denotes an absolute truth, a, a certain truth, a, a truth more true than truth, so to speak. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. We'll come back this, to this verse in just a moment. Jesus said, and again, this is sort of a repetition of what Jesus already said. He said before, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Keeping, abiding, it means to persevere in his word. In, in this truth of what he just proclaimed, his claims to be not just the Messiah, but the Son of God. But this is the truth that causes the Jews to to, to reject Jesus all the more and confirms their their own ideas of Jesus having this demon. They say to him in verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? The Jews are saying, who do you think you are? Jesus. Our father Abraham died. The prophets died. They were men of God, righteous men. Are you saying you're better than them? Again, as we've talked about in the past, a lot of their anger and their frustration towards Jesus stems from some sort of Jewish nationalism. They were the descendants of Abraham. The prophets of God came from their people. They were the chosen people, the priests of God. So remember, it's why they thought earlier in our passage that they didn't think they needed to be free when Jesus said, "The truth will set you free." They didn't realize that they were enslaved to sin, just as all of us are. What follows is Jesus' exposition on his identity, and the Jews ask uh, the Jews did ask Jesus, "Who do you think he is?" And that culminates in one of the most explicit. The most clear, the most blatant claims of Jesus as God. He says in verse 58 of our passage. After the, after the Jews say, Are, you're not even more than 50 years old. Abraham died long ago. Or have you met him? Sort of as a, as a mockery towards Jesus and his claims. And Jesus replies, truly, truly, again, verily, verily. Absolute truth. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. For The third time in chapter 8, Jesus makes an explicit connection between himself and the God of the Old Testament. Remember in verse 24 when he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then same thing in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. If you're looking at your Bible and you see the word he there, he isn't there in the original text. The the translators put he there in order to allow for the sentence to flow better. But the way that John writes it, it's, again, Jesus declaring, identifying himself as the great I am. The great I am that we just sang about a few minutes ago. Now again, in verse 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. Before Abraham, I was, I am, and I will be. I am the great I am. He's referring to, of course, the name of God um, that is given to Moses as the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, 14. Biblical scholars call it the tetragrammaton. I am that I am. The name of God that was so revered by Hebrew scribes that they could not even consider writing it down and had to write Adonai in its place. That's why, if you're studying the Old Testament, and whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters, that's Adonai, and they're always referring to the name of God given at the burning bush. It's the name of God that that was so revered and was expected to be regarded as holy that God Himself literally gave a command in the Ten Commandments to keep it holy, to not speak it in vain. It's this name that once Jesus speaks it, it says the Jews are, are, are riled up to the point where they want to stone him. Because he knew what he was doing. And the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate. Jesus was claiming to be God, Adonai himself. He spoke the unspeakable name which merited death, even blasphemy. They could not accept Christ's identity as the God of the Old Testament. Now, as much as that was a problem in Jesus' day there at this scene, this presents to us an issue that still persists even in modern day churches. Especially in so-called seeker-sensitive churches. And that is the separation between the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, and the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, Adonai. There's a sort of embarrassment or even fear when it comes to talking about the Old Testament and what God did there in those passages and talking about Jesus in conversation with unbelievers. The unbeliever will say, well, you tell me that Jesus is all about love and grace and mercy, but the Old Testament, God is so angry. He's, so, he's like a tyrant. He's like an evil judge. And I think the believer's response oftentimes is, well, let's only talk about the New Testament then. Let's only talk about love and grace and those good characteristics of God. Or completely separate ourselves from the Old Testament altogether. God did things differently in the Old Testament, sometimes we say. Or or to some degree or to some extent, some people have said, that's not the same God. The God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the God of the New Testament. And if this thought has ever crossed your mind, this sentiment actually echoes an ancient heresy in the early church in the second century called Marcionism. Marcionism is the belief that the Old Testament God is completely different, a completely different entity than the New Testament God. And therefore, as Christians, we should completely separate ourselves from the Old Testament. This also is the foundations of Gnosticism's, Gnosticism, who, who which believed that the God of the Old Testament was an evil, vindictive God, not the same God as the New Testament. And if you're thinking, like, well, you know, what's going on? Like, I've never heard this before. Well, there's prominent preachers who preach this too. Andy Stanley, maybe you've heard of him, the son of Charles Stanley. He's a proponent of the similar way of thinking and similar sentiment of separating from the Old Testament and the New. He said, and I quote, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. I mean, tell that to Jesus, right? He's, it's Jesus himself who, who identifies as the Old Testament God, the great I Am, as we just read from our passage. Again, in this conversation with the Jews, Jesus could have left out the Old Testament Just stuck to the, you know, God loves you, I'm here for you, I want to forgive you, all the good stuff. But it's he himself who brings up the connection to the Old Testament. In addition, according to our passage, those who could not accept this reality, those who could not accept this connection between Jesus and Yahweh, were those who did not abide, who did not keep his word who Jesus called are are the children of devil, those who suppress the truth of God. Now what this tells us for us believers is that disciples of Jesus must have a true and complete image of Christ at the center of their life. Yes, Jesus is loving, but he's also wrathful. Yes, Jesus is gracious, but he's also punishing. Yes, Jesus is merciful, but he's also just. Yes, he's forgiving, but he's also vengeful. God who rained fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah is the same Jesus who said, love your enemies. God who turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt is the same Jesus who healed the sick. God who commanded Israel to commit to destruction all the pagan nations in the land of Canaan is the same Jesus who offered living waters to the Samaritan woman. See, if, if we only have a partial idea of Christ in our lives, just the love and the kindness and grace and mercy, you don't have a complete image of Christ in your life. It's, a, it's rather more so a Christ of your imagination. A Jesus who you have picked and chosen the qualities that you like, that is more politically correct, that is more comforting, that is not offensive. That is not the real Jesus. Disciples of Jesus must have a true and complete image of Christ at the center of their faith. And that requires the Old Testament. The Jews in the, our passage failed to do this or to see this, and that that resulted in their unbelief, in their rejection of Christ. They were willing to receive Christ as his political messiah, as his miracle worker, as a good teacher, but to have him be more than. More than that, to be the great I am, as he claimed to be, that had greater implications. And because they rejected this Old Testament connection, we see how they treated Jesus in our passage. They mock him. They ridicule him. They dishonor him. Similarly, if we as believers fail to grasp a full picture of who Jesus is that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. We are in danger of doing the same, of being short-sighted in our understanding, like the Jews, of or or, or having believed a made-up Jesus, one that we've concocted in the depths of our sentimentalities and fears, and not based on any biblical truth. And so, our hope for this morning is to unpack for us why we must, must, as believers, reconcile the God of the Old Testament with Jesus in the New Testament. Our goal for this morning is to give us a full picture of Christ's identity, His nature as a Son of God, and in order to see the depths, in order to see the depths of our hope in Christ that finds its roots in the Old Testament. My hope is that we've been reminded of this privilege that we have as, as the people of God. As, as those who, have, who get to see the full picture of Christ on, the, on this side of the cross. And where all this starts, I believe, is for seeing Christ in the Old Testament. Not just at, present in, in terms of prophecies and foreshadows as we've looked at in the past, but... Literally, actually, physically being present in the Old Testament. I'm going to go through some terms with you so that you have something to work with as you study the Word of God yourself. And then I'll get to some points afterwards. But I think it's important when we want to see Christ in the Old Testament that there are some terms that we need to keep to heart, keep to mind. Um, Two terms specifically. Theophany and Christophany. Theophany and Christophany. A theophany is a a physical or visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament. The Bible says that God is spirit, invisible. He's, He's unlike these pagan gods or idols that have always some sort of anthropomorphic feature or has some human body, right? Zeus is like some old old man with a white beard hindu gods are animals with human bodies thor is chris hemsworth right there's there's this idea that that in other pagan religions they make gods to have or look like humans but the god of the bible is invisible he's spirit Jesus himself says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's denoting the invisible nature of God. But on the event that God does show up, that's called a theophany. For example, the fire on Mount Sinai when the Israelites were there and they're waiting for the Ten Commandments or the burning bush or God showing up in a tempest when he's speaking to Job in that book. Those are theophanies. There's examples of God as well coming in, in sort of human form having human characteristics as well. Example of that is in Genesis 18. Abraham was visited by God and two, other, and two angels right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are called Theophanies. Now, in addition to Theophanies, sort of as a, maybe a category, subcategory underneath that, we also find in the Old Testament Christophanies. This is a very specific kind of theophany and it refers to the instances in the Old Testament where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, appears in a visible or physical way. Again, prior to the virgin birth and coming to the earth in that way. Now a great indicator of this Christophany that we see throughout the Old Testament is by a phrase that we see that is constantly there that says, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. This is repeated throughout the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, the word for angel simply means messenger. And so there are times in the Old Testament where God does send angelic beings to minister to his people, to deliver a word, to deliver a message. Whenever you specifically see this phrase in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Adonai, capital L-O-R-D, it's speaking about a very specific messenger. It acts like a title to this messenger. It's associated, again, with the pre-incarnate Christ. And we, know, and, and we know that there's a difference with this angel of the Lord and other angelic beings because oftentimes in that passage when the angel of the Lord is mentioned, the person interacting with that angel, this messenger of God, you, we see him start to... The, the, the conversation starts to change between this messenger and to God himself. It's as though they are speaking to God himself. For example, let me give you some examples of this. In Genesis 16, the first appearance of this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is, uh, is, with, uh, is Abraham's uh, uh, servant, Hagar. After she's sent out into the wilderness in Genesis 16, this angel of the Lord comes and ministers to her. And in Hagar's response to this angel of the Lord, she says, Genesis 16, verse 13, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. She's calling this angel a God. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Barat. Bir Lahai Roy literally means the well of the living one who sees me. So Hagar is looking at this angel of the Lord, this messenger from God, as God himself. Same thing happens in Exodus chapter 13, that great theophany of the pillar of fire. In chapter Exodus 13, it first says that this pillar of fire is God himself leading the people. Then in Exodus 14, it says The the one who's inside the pillar of fire is the angel of the Lord. Then in Judges chapter 6, the angel of the Lord meets with Gideon and calls him to fight. Halfway through that convo, Gideon starts referring to this messenger from God as Adonai himself, the Lord, the great I am. Judges 13, Samson's father meets with the angel of the Lord. And then his response to his wife is, we shall surely die for we have seen God. And then Samson's father asks the, the angel of the Lord what his name was. And then in Judges 13, 18, this, this messenger from God says, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Now cross-reference that to the great Christmas prophecy of Jesus Christ in Isaiah verse, or Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, a prime example of this 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 um, this this angel of the Lord relationship and God Himself is at the burning bush, and that's 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 in relation to our passage, right? That's what Jesus is quoting at the burning bush when when Moses meets with God. It says, "Now Moses, Exodus chapter three, verse one." It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. Then verse 2, it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord capital L-O-R-D, Adonai himself, Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Many more examples of this angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But again, as we've been discussing here, this messenger from God, messenger from Adonai, is meant to symbolize, or refers to rather, the pre-incarnate Christ showing up in the Old Testament to speak to His people directly, to dispense grace, and to deliver at times God's wrath to the people. So now, if Jesus was present in the Old Testament, as we've been trying, I've been trying to show you here, and the writers of Hebrews says in Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and and forever. Listen, there's no reason to believe that the God of the Old Testament is different than Jesus in the New Testament, the God of the New Testament. No reason to separate the two or really to even be embarrassed or ashamed. If that is our sentiment, then there is is a discrepancy in how we understand the works of God and, and and the move of God in the Old Testament and the New. If that's our sentiment of embarrassment or being ashamed of it. On the contrary, it is crucial, it is important to view Christ in the light of the Old Testament. Specifically so that we revere Him, that we rejoice in Him, and we rely on Him. Let me break this down for us this morning. We need to view Christ in the Old Testament in order to revere Him. In order to revere Him. In our passage, the Jews openly mock Jesus. Again, they say, uh, that you're a Samaritan, that you have a demon. These are these are insulting words. They're, they're they're derogatory terms. And Jesus answers, "I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me." They clearly did not fear him. They clearly did not show. Ounce an ounce of reverence towards Jesus in this passage, despite Jesus already declaring who he was, explicitly declaring who he was, giving giving even evidence of who he was through his miracles, through his teachings. Yet they still dishonor him. But imagine if they if they had believed what Jesus had claimed. Imagine if they had believed that what Jesus claimed, that he, he was actually the God of the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, the one who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the one who killed the firstborn of Egypt, the one who struck down Israel's enemies, 185,000 Assyrians in a single night in the book of 2 Kings. Do you think they would have called him names? Do you think they would have openly mocked him if they believed that he was indeed Yahweh God? If they believed that he was Yahweh Nechamoth, God of vengeance. They showed a lack of reverence because they willingly chose ignorance. They willingly chose ignorance. Despite, again, the information given to them, despite the evidence given to them by Jesus himself, the guy who healed the sick, the guy who, who calmed the storm, the guy who turned water into wine, the guy who cast out demons, despite all of that, they still chose ignorance. They still chose irreverence. Well, maybe, you know, they, they need to learn from experience, right? People usually fear something after they learn from experience. You know, a kid touches a stove and, and then they won't touch it again because they have burnt themselves, right? Not, it's not the case every time. I mean, I've, I've been watching, uh, maybe you've watched this on YouTube as well, this guy named Coyote Peterson, right? This guy who likes to get stung by wasp and bitten by ants and stuff. For science, of course. And, you know, after watching his videos, I don't need to experience how it feels like to be stung by a tarantula wasp to know that I don't want to be stung by a tarantula wasp. I learned from his experience. I'm, I, because That's because I'm, I'm willing to accept his experience as factual, as truth. Reverence should have naturally come from Jesus declaring himself as the God of the Old Testament. After Jesus declares that, after Jesus draws that connecting line from himself to the burning bush. Reverence from these people should have come Naturally. The reality is, despite having that info, even having this personal experience of, of, of Jesus himself, they chose ignorance. And the truth is, sometimes we can be like that as well. Christians can be very irreverent towards God. Maybe it's because of the grace that we have been lavished with, or the love and the forgiveness that we have come to know and come to take for granted sometimes, we can be very reverent towards God. Sometimes we use grace as a license to sin. You know If, if your interactions with God in your, in your prayer life, in your walk is super casual, you know Jesus is my homeboy. That's irreverence. You're talking to, as we just sang, the holy, holy, holy God. The God of the universe. The God of the Old Testament and the New. If we, if we show no respect towards the words of God, to the commands of God, instead, instead we live in disobedience, that's irreverence. And Paul says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Now, be assured that as children of God, we may not experience His wrath, His punishment against sin. But rest assured, we will experience discipline. We are children of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The idea of fear and trembling here is of that reverential fear. Stemming from knowing that the holy, holy, holy God is working in and through us. For his good pleasure. Take the the weight of responsibility from that, the gravity of that, knowing that we in this life represent the gospel of the holy God. That's why Paul says later on in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The Old Testament tells us that Jesus ought to be revered. If we accept that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, that it tells us that he deserves all the honor and all the respect. Despite us receiving the the grace and kindness and mercy of God, the love of God, that does not diminish the amount of honor and respect Christ deserves. It's like in the Chronicles of Narnia, when, when Lucy asked the beavers if Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus, is safe. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. He's, a, he's safe. He's a lion. What are you talking about, girl? He isn't safe. He's a lion. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you, the beaver says. The same sentiment towards Christ. We must revere him. We must revere him. We must revere him, give, show him all the honor and respect that is due to him. Secondly, it's important to view Christ in light of the Old Testament because it helps us to rejoice in him. To rejoice in him. Verse um, 56 of our passage. It says, Jesus says to these Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus told the Jews that Abraham found delight, He rejoiced in him, specifically in God's promise that one day he would bring forth an offspring, one that is the Messiah, and make him a father of many nations. And it's not just Abraham who delighted in, the, the, in Christ himself in, in God, but all throughout the Old Testament, you see men and women who found their joy, delight in God. And it's always a call to do the same. A call to rejoice in God. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 112 verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Who greatly delights in his commandments. Why is the Old Testament necessary for us to delight in Christ? Why, why isn't our own personal experience enough? Because the Old Testament is what reveals His character. His mighty works, His greatness. You know, fire and brimstone aside for a moment here. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament who saved His people from slavery in Egypt, who caused the great nations to fall In in all to protect his people who delivered Daniel out of the lion's mouth and who used the sling of a shepherd boy to take down a giant. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. The God who made the sun stand still. Who by his word created the universe and all therein. Paul says... Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through Him and for Him, and in Him all things hold together. The New Testament tells us of Christ's power, of His character, of His nature, but the Old Testament shows it in practice. The Old Testament reveals the majesty and the glory of Christ, that which which was veiled in His incarnation And and that ought to stir in us awe and wonder, delight in our God. Psalm 11, verse 1 to 4, a passage we read this morning, Praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him, in them of splendor and majesty in his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Those who truly delight in the Lord do not simply do so based on what he's doing today or what he will do tomorrow, but also on what he's already done, what he's already accomplished. Again, in that passage in Psalm 111, it talks about, again, great are the works of the Lord and are studied by all who delight in them. That idea of, being, of studying the works of God, where do you go to study? In the Old Testament. Again, you see the character of God in that. And as believers, that is our privilege, that we being on the, on the other side of grace, on the other side of the cross, we get to look back on everything leading up to the cross. What God did in the Old Testament just to bring about our salvation in the New Testament. Jews who, who Jesus was speaking to didn't realize that Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of everything that they had hoped in. Everything that they had put their faith in. Jesus himself said that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but that he, would, he came to fulfill it. And as believers, we can look back and rejoice. We can look back and rejoice at the Old Testament, the things that God has done and accomplished. Not just rejoice, but also hope. Also hope. That's the last reason why it's important to connect Jesus to the Old Testament is so that we can fully rely on Him. Rely on Him. Again, the, this, the key passage here that really aggravates the Jews' verse fifty one when he says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews saw this as Jesus saying that he is better than Abraham and the prophets and their forefathers, and rather than a fulfillment of the promises that that the prophets had hoped for. Peter calls our salvation. The thing in which the prophets prophesied about and searched for and in which the angels longed to see, longed to look. Jesus said again that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets but to fulfill it. See, in Christ do we find the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament. The promise of regeneration that he would turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh so that we might do his will is fulfilled in Christ. The promise of knowing the truth and, and, and truly knowing what is true is fulfilled in Christ. The promise of God's kingdom coming to be established and destroying all, the, all, the, all of man's kingdoms is fulfilled in Christ. The promise of God's presence. The Jews in the wilderness during their time there asked Is God with us? They asked Moses, is God with us? And Jesus' literal name is Emmanuel, God with us. The promise of forgiveness, freedom from sin, the promise of resurrection, victory over death, all of it find its anchor in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And listen, what the Old Testament does is, is not just tell us of the promises of God, but again, as we've talked about shows us those promises at work. It shows us the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. It shows us His patience, His long-suffering towards His people. It gives us evidence that despite our, our us falling short, our, our unfaithfulness, He remains faithful. It shows us who we can rely on. I mean, you know... Like all of you, I'm not perfect, and I I know I don't know about you, but there are times where, where I fall short, and 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 I think about you know I, I wonder if God's ever going to say you know Ian I'm done with you. Now I'm fed up with you. I I'm done. My patience has run thin. I'm done with you. Yet when I look at the story of Israel, and I see God's patience towards. A rebellious people from generation to generation, despite their idolatry, despite their wishy-washy faith, despite their legalism, despite them rebelling against God, God remained faithful to them. God loved them. And I can't help but be reminded of God's grace and patience and love towards me. The Old Testament is there to show you who you can rely on. That the one who said in our passage, passage, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But the one who said that is faithful and true. is telling the truth. And will keep his word. I've been coming to more, I've come to more understanding that the Bible isn't just a book that tells us what happened but a book that tells us what always happens we sin god forgives we run god pursues we fall short and god saves and the great hope about all of that is as we have as, as we have mentioned already jesus never changes he is, yet, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's what it means, that He is the great I am. He will be what He will be. He is a self-existing one, the eternal God. It is the eternal God who promises that we will never see death. Should we keep His word? Should we believe in His word? So if, if God Himself has already taken care of, uh, of the greatest enemy of man, death itself how much more are the other trials in our lives? How much more our financial situations, our insecurities, how much more the our relationship problems, how much more are our struggle with sin. If God has taken care of death itself, how much more are the other trials in our life? This is the great anchor that we have, great foundation that cannot be shaken. We cannot see the heights of our hope in the New Testament without seeing the roots in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is crucial to our, to our faith in Christ because, again, it gets us to revere Him, to show Him the honor that He deserves, to rejoice in Him, to delight in His ways, delight in what He's done, and, of course, to rely on Him, to fully believe, put our hope in Him. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslivepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.